And, and what I'm going to do, I hope without any hint of uh, arrogance at all, but what I want to do is just demonstrate, if I'm, if I'm able, uh, something of what we were just speaking about at the end of the morning meeting. Uh, and that is the desire we should have to know more of the behavior and the beauty of the Lord Jesus himself. If we're believers, we'll be eternally grateful for that battle. But here in time, as we wait for the Lord to come, we should be looking more and more to learn of him in his behavior and in his beauty. It's that that will produce worship more than anything else. So it's for the honor of God and it's for the good of our own souls. So the little example is just one I've been enjoying myself uh, very recently. And um, so in Genesis 43, I just want to read with you in verse 16. Genesis 43 and verse 16, And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, that is, with his brethren, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home, and slay, and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. We trust God will bless the reading and the short study we have today of this passage of his precious word. When you're reading through these scriptures, and don't ignore your Old Testament, when you're reading through these scriptures, first of all, you're reading them to learn what they're teaching you historically. The, the, the word of God is not a book of myth and fable. It is about events. They were real people, real places, real events. But the Spirit of God has chosen these people and events and occasions, he's chosen them out of the millions he could have done, and he's chosen these to lay on divine record. So we build up a picture of something of God's purpose historically, but then the Bible isn't just a history book. We're not told these things just so that we might have a better understanding of history. They're there to teach us divine purpose, and they're also there, the Bible tells us, to be of lessons to us. So when you're reading it, and you're reading it historically, uh, I was brought up with this very good discipline of reading, which was, I was taught, read your Bible as a journalist would behave in an incident to which that journalist has been sent. In other words, a journalist is sent out by a newspaper editor or TV editor and something's going on and uh, he says, no, I want you to go out and make a report. So the journalist is trained simply to ask questions. And that's how you get to what's actually going on. And so they will ask all the various simple questions. What is happening? Who is it happening to? Where is it happening? Why is it happening? What's the outcome of it all? You're just asking questions. And if, in your younger years especially, you learn that discipline, you will find it will just stick with you. So that whenever you're reading your Bible and you're reading these historical events, you'll be thinking to yourself now, who is it that's involved? And where is it taking place? And why is it taking place? And what's the purpose of it all? What's the outcome of it all? So we look at a verse like this, and we find that there are initially 
three characters. Joseph and Benjamin and the ruler of his house. That's there in this verse. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house. So we've got three people there, Joseph and Benjamin and the ruler. Then we have reference to these men, the them. Uh, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, bring these men home. So we have the subjects of the discussion of these three, Joseph and Benjamin and the ruler, and then the subjects of their interest are these men. And the purpose is, these men shall dine with me at noon. So what you often find, particularly in the uh, Old Testament scriptures from Genesis 12 onwards, you will find that most of these occasions have got some illustration, some bearing on God's purpose for Israel. Because from Genesis 12 through to Acts chapter 2, God is dealing with Israel. In those early chapters we've been looking at through the week, he's dealing with the world of men, regardless of any nationality. But now from chapter 12, right the way through the, the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, the next 2,000 years, God is dealing primarily with Israel. And you read of other nations and empires and men and kings only insofar as they have any bearing upon the progress of the children of Israel. So there are many empires that happened in world history and they're never referred to in the Bible. They had nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with God's purpose. They didn't come into the picture. So that's the mainstream of Genesis 12 through to Acts chapter 2. So in the historical things, you will often find prophetic pictures. And because all God's purpose is bound up in Christ, whether it's his purpose for the nations, his purpose for Israel, or his purpose for the church, it is true that, that with diligence you will find Christ in all the scriptures. Not in every verse, but, but certainly in the themes that are there. And uh, here's this great theme of uh, the, the story, the narrative of Joseph and uh, how he came from the father's house eventually to be the second only to Pharaoh. And you probably know the, the narrative very well yourselves. And here embedded in this narrative is this little expression. Part of the great overall plan that Joseph had to see his brethren restored to him, but righteously. They had to be repentant. They had to be brought to repentance. And so there's all this, uh, not scheming, but planning going on that will eventually break these men down. And they're about to do what they once vowed they would never do. When Joseph told them about the dream he had had, about the shocks of corn all bowing down and so forth, they said, us bow down to you? Never. Absolutely never. Well, they're about to do what they said they would never do. And that, of course, is in itself a picture of the nation of Israel. You know, they, uh, we will not have this to rule over us. We're not going to bow down to him. But they will do. They will do. And it will come as a result of weeping and repentance and so, when we look at it prophetically, within this overall story of Joseph, and, and we have seen that Joseph is very, very much a picture of Christ, 
in the broad picture of things. But then embedded within that picture is another one. Where Joseph now becomes a picture of God in his sovereign purpose. The father in his sovereign purpose. And Benjamin is the key to the restoration of these men. Without Benjamin, it wasn't going to work. Without Benjamin, it couldn't work. On a previous visit down into Egypt of his brethren, Joseph had said, now, you're spies, and I'm just going to imprison you all, and I'll let you rot. And, and they said, we're not spies at all. Honestly, we're not. And, and you know the story, and how eventually they had to go home to Jacob, and they had to say, look, there's this man down in Egypt. Uh, he says, if we don't bring Benjamin with us, then... He's just going to have us all imprisoned as spies. We'll not get anywhere without Benjamin. And of course, the great grief of Jacob, because Benjamin and Joseph were the two sons of Rachel. And she died in chapter 35. And as far as he's concerned, Joseph is already dead. And now it looks as though he's going to lose Benjamin. But Benjamin's key to the whole thing. In this verse... Joseph is a picture of God and his sovereign purpose. He's planned the whole thing. Now Benjamin's key to the restoration of those men. Then we have this man called the ruler of the house. And it's interesting, as you read through your Bible, on occasions you will come across servants who are not named. They're referred to and they play a part in whatever narrative it is, but they're not named. And I think you'll find that whenever you come across an unnamed servant in your Bible, he'll be a picture of the Holy Spirit. And that's certainly, I think, what we have here. It's just a picture. So if that's the case, here in this verse 16, we have Joseph as a picture of the Father, Benjamin a picture of the Lord Jesus, and the unnamed ruler of the house, a picture of the Spirit of God. And all three are working together with this view. Bring these men home. Now, as I've said prophetically, it really speaks about the nation of Israel. It speaks about the fact that rebellious brethren who uh, sold their brother into slavery and uh, said they would never, never bow down to him, now they're about to be repentant, they're about to receive the one they've rejected, and it's a wonderful picture overall of Israel's restoration. But there are pictures within pictures that always are. So within the picture, we have the words of Joseph. When he saw Benjamin with them, he said to the unnamed ruler, he said, bring these men home. Do you know, that's the work of the Holy Spirit for you and me today as well. We, we could almost write over the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the church today. Bring these men home. We're not left alone on this pilgrimage, you know. We're not left alone from when we got saved until we see the Savior. We have an indwelling, divine person, the Holy Spirit. And his overall ministry, whether it is engendering us to pray as we find him in Romans chapter 8, or whether it's sealing us as he does in Ephesians chapter 1, Whatever his ministry to us, it's all part of this purpose, the Spirit of God's brief, if I might put it reverently like that. His mission, bring these men home. I love that. I've loved being with you all 
Of course I have. But I'm looking forward to being home. God willing, I'll set off tomorrow, and Tuesday I'll get there. I'm looking forward to getting home. Shouldn't we be like that? Treating the things of this world practically, yes, but lightly as well. It's not where we belong. We're going home. And there should be longings for home. Because that's where the Savior is. And, and, and we've been given a divine person whose mission and whose task is to bring these men home. For we're going to dine with the heavenly Joseph at noon, the very height of the glory of the day. We're going to dine with him. But that, if you like, is an application within the application. The application really, prophetically, is to the restoration of the nation. It all hinged on Benjamin. Do you remember when Benjamin was born? It was in Genesis chapter 35. And uh, again, if you want a good chapter to study and keep coming back to, go to that chapter. Quite a few folk die in, in Genesis 35. Rebecca's nurse, she dies. And Rachel dies. And Isaac dies. And there's all kinds of interesting circumstances. And, uh, and it'll lead you into another study of those who names that were changed. There's a place whose name is changed. And there's people whose names are changed. In that chapter 35, Jacob's name is changed. He's no longer going to be called Jacob. He's going to be called Israel. A prince with God. He's been referred to in Scripture as that worm, Jacob. And that worm, Jacob, is going to become a prince with God. It was a little while ago that um, I sat with some of my grandchildren around me when we were on vacation. And they said, Granddad, are you going to tell us a story before we go to bed? I said, well, what story would you like? So little Autumn, she pipes up and she says, well, Granddad, um, I was reading a story about how uh, this, this lady, she was a princess and she kissed a frog. And uh, the frog turned into a prince and they got, will you tell us a story like that? I said, I'll tell you a better story than that. I'll tell you a story about how a worm was changed into a prince. Really, she said, I haven't heard that one. I said, well, it's in the Bible. She said, is that in the Bible? I said, it really is. How God changed a, never mind a frog, he changed a worm into a prince. And that's there in Genesis chapter 35. Great book, isn't it? So, when I read about the birth of Benjamin, he was born in Bethlehem. So that immediately gets the antennae up, doesn't it? He's born in Bethlehem. He's the only one of Jacob's 12 sons who's born in the land. All the others were born outside. But now he comes from another place. This, this Benjamin, he's going to come from another place. He is the only one of them to be born with two names. And when Benjamin was born, Rachel had had hard labor. And when he was born, she died. But before she died, she had chance to name her infant. And she said, this little boy is going to be called Benoni. He's the son of my sorrow. But the father, Jacob, he said, no, 
He's not going to be called the son of my sorrow. He's going to be called Benjamin, the son of the right hand. So when he was born, he was given two names. One associated with sorrow and the other associated with glory. And the suffering and the glory that should follow immediately tells us we're looking at a picture of Christ. So isn't it, isn't it wonderful how in the history of our Bible and in the prophetic teaching of our Bible we have a wonderful cameo of Christ. He's born in Bethlehem. He has two names. One associated with suffering and one associated with sorrow. And it's he who is, who is going to be the very key to the restoration of his brethren. Now we've hinted at it already, but let me say it again plainly. The death of the Lord Jesus and the work of the Lord Jesus at Calvary was not all about you and me. Now it's understandable that we, we, we kind of major on that. Because we should be thankful and grateful eternally for what Christ did for us at Calvary. But Calvary and the coming of the Lord Jesus was not all about you and me. He came, according to Galatians 3, he came to be made a curse for his people Israel. That was very important. Israel, in that sense, had first claim upon the goodness of God because he'd chosen them. They were his chosen people. And you recall that he made that covenant with them uh, at, at Sinai and they agreed that whatever God had said they would do. And God said, well now if you do everything I've said you'll be blessed but if you break this law you'll be cursed. Well of course they broke it. They broke it before even Moses had come down with the tables of stone. Romans 8 tells us why. Because what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh. These people were sinners. They were fleshly. They couldn't keep the law. So as a nation, they're under the condemnation and curse of a law. And Christ came to be made a curse for the nation of Israel. That's what Galatians 3 is about, largely. And Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, read your Bible carefully. He uses pronouns like this, we and us. Christ was made a curse for us. Who are you writing to, Paul? Who are you speaking about? He says, at the moment, I'm speaking to my fellow Jews. Us. I, I was a Jew. I'm a Jew by birth, says Paul. There are others in these Galatian assemblies, and they were Jews by birth. Uh, and so you say, well, how do we know he's addressing them? Because after he's spoken about we and us, toward the end of Galatians 3, he opens up the discussion and starts speaking to you. He uses the pronoun you. So clearly he's been speaking to a small group, we and us, and then he opens it up and begins to speak to you all. Gentiles as well as Jews by birth. So we sing hymns like, free from the law, O happy condition. Jesus has bled and there is remission. Carry on singing the hymn, but just remember it doesn't apply to you, unless you're a Jew. We were never under the law. Don't mix things up. We were never under the law. We were never under its curse. That was all about Israel. And Christ came for them. He came to deliver the world, the, the, the physical world. He came to deliver creation from under its curse. But sure, he also came to win a bride for himself. So, when we're thinking about the significance of Benjamin. 
He's the one who came from another place, different from his brethren. He was the only one of his brethren who was not implicated, of course, in Joseph being sold into Egypt. He was innocent of it all. So you've got an innocent man from another place, and he's associated with suffering and glory. And, and, And he's the key to this work. He's the key to all God's purpose, whether it's for the Jew or for the Gentile or for the church of God. The the way in which the story then unfolds, the work of that ruler of the house, you can read it for yourself down through Genesis 43, but if he's a picture, as I believe he is, of the Holy Spirit, you can see what he will do for them. The first thing they were worried about more than anything was this business of the treasure in their sacks. The fact that they bought money down to pay for the corn and each time they went home with corn they found the money was back in the neck of their sacks. And you can see that one of the first things that that ruler of the house does, verse 23 of the chapter we read in, he said to these men, peace be to you, fear not, your God and the God of your fathers hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Can you see what he's doing? The first thing he's doing is assuring them that there's nothing to pay. There's absolutely nothing to pay. It's all settled. You happy with that? Happy with that in your own experience? When Israel comes into the good of their earthly blessing, they will know it was all of God, it was all of grace. And so will we. Are you happy it's all settled? We do worry sometimes, don't we, as to whether we believed enough or whether we did enough ourselves. Well, listen, we contributed nothing to our salvation at all. We simply accepted it by faith. It was a gift, and we accepted it. And one of the first ministries of the Holy Spirit is just to assure us it's all settled. I had your money. It's all been paid. There's nothing left for you to do. And then there's other things, too. Uh, you would read earlier that, and later indeed, that the brethren didn't know, of course, who Joseph was. And they assumed him to be an Egyptian. And in fact, they spoke to each other later in his presence, not knowing that he could understand everything they were saying. But he hadn't yet revealed himself to his brethren. So one of the things this, this ruler of the house was doing for these men, he was interpreting for them. They were speaking in their language and he was interpreting it and speaking to Joseph in Egyptian. He was their interpreter. That's true of us as well, you know. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you and me. The understanding of divine things. And you might say, and again, I don't say this to draw any attention, it's just simply a fact. You'll get younger brethren will come and they'll say, how do you study your Bible? You say, well, why do you want to know? Well, we want to know what you know. So never mind how I study mine, you just study yours. Because as you study your Bible, the Spirit of God himself will draw from what you read what you need to do for the Lord. He'll not necessarily give you what he gives me from it. That doesn't make me better than you or anything else. It just means that he'll bring from the storehouse and the treasury of God's word, he will bring from it, as you study it, what you need 
at that time and what you need for your service. It's what makes this book so wonderful. It's not... I used to, I used to work... My, my secular career was in aviation. And, and we, had, we had books that told us about all the different ways the aircraft systems worked and all this kind of thing. And when, there came a day when you could genuinely say, well, I know it all. It was true. You studied it enough, worked with it enough, read it enough, and there was no interpretation about it. This man's understanding of the hydraulic system wouldn't be different from mine or yours. It worked the way it worked. And it wasn't long in your career before you could say of that particular book about those particular systems, yeah, I, I know all that. <laughs> You'll never know all this. Never know all this. The living word of God. And that's what makes it such a delightful book. Don't just read it, study it. And pray over it. And as you pray over it, seek that the Spirit of God, your interpreter, will take divine things and interpret them for you. And he'll give you from this book what you need at that time for your own good of soul and, and for your own ministry and I've sometimes said you could get three brethren and sit them together with the same passage of Scripture, give them an hour, and the first man will come up with a couple of gospel messages. And the second man might well come up with a word for the children. And the third man may well come up with the uh, structure of the passage so that he could give an exposition of it. That's the way the Word of God is. Make it the man of your counsel. Whoever you are, old, young, male or female, Get and read your Bible and study it. How else is God going to speak to you if you don't do that? Let the Spirit of God be your interpreter. But then he had a ministry for them that was lovely in verse 24. The man brought the men into Joseph's house, gave them water, so he refreshed them. They washed their feet. You can't help but think of John 13. And he gave their asses provender. Equipped them for service. And they made ready the present. This was a present they had brought with them. They made ready the present against Joseph came at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. Do you know there's lovely lessons in this, isn't there? The work of the Spirit of God in equipping and preparing these men for the occasion when they would sit and they would eat with Joseph. Did we know anything? I asked my own heart first. Did we know anything of that preparation when we came this morning? You see, if, if when we come to remember the Lord and to gather unto him, totally real except unseen. We've, we, we came to gather unto him. And, and the Spirit of God would seek to prepare our hearts and to equip us. He'll do it through this word. He'll do it through the scriptures. And, and there will be a glimpse here and a thought there and it will thrill the soul and it will be presented in worship audibly by the men or inaudibly by the sisters. And there will be that collective worship that will ascend to God through Christ. And it comes as the Spirit of God acts as our interpreter. He's the one preparing us against the moment that we will eat with Joseph at noon. It's the only antidote to ritualism. 
If we don't know that kind of preparation, then all that will happen is that week by week we've got a ritual and it's empty and we just come and we do it and we surround it with our little rules and regulations and and we will make the event the thing itself. But really the event this morning was to meet with Christ. It was to meet with him. And as we met with him in the midst, in the midst of this godless world and all its antagonism to divine things and all its overthrow of divine order, here and there, God looked down today as he still does as the, as the earth continues its circuit on its axis, as the Lord's day continues, back home, it's hours ago that they remembered the Lord. For us, we've only just done it. Out west, they're perhaps just preparing to remember the Lord. And as the day goes through its circuit, so God is looking down upon a world of rebellion, enmity, rejection of Christ, overthrow of divine order, and here are there, here and there, there are companies of sinners he saved by his grace. And they're observing divine order, and they're simply gathered around a loaf and a cup, and God looks upon that with the greatest of pleasure, that there are now sinners whom he saved, and they're making a proclamation in this wicked world that Jesus Christ is Lord. If it's only a ritual for us, how much we're missing. If it's only a ritual for for us, we're really robbing God. And so we need to examine ourselves. And, And perhaps, as I close, that examination comes, not only as in verse 25, they made ready, the present against Joseph came at noon. They had been told by their father, in verse 11 of the chapter, the father said unto them, if it must be so, if you do have to go back to Egypt, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the manna present. How lovely. Any thought of that for this next week, God willing? That you would see to it that spiritually you just gather together the best fruits of the land. Put them in a vessel, spiritually speaking, so that you can bring them and present them to the man when next you dine with him. There's one responsibility. Take of the best fruits. Carry down the manna present. Verse 25, they made ready the present against Joseph, came at noon. But then, a little later, and uh, they have the uh, experience of sitting and eating with Joseph. He then makes arrangements for his silver cup to be um, put into the uh, sack of Benjamin. And so that particular part of the narrative goes on. And then that cup, of course, well, it didn't stay in the sack. It would have been restored to Joseph. And the simple statement he made concerning it was verse 17 of chapter 44. He said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. Make ready the present, that present which you've brought. Make ready the present to give to him. 
and then the pleasure of sitting and eating bread with him. And then Joseph says, and we'll just apply it, the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. The cup was found in your hand this morning, as mine. And the man in whose hand the cup is found, my servant. That should be the practical outcome. We come to remember the Lord, we come to give, we come to be obedient to his will and his command. We come to present him to the Father and to his God. We come to give expression to our worship. We come to be obedient. But surely, surely what we do should have a profound effect upon us. That when we go out from that, and when we go back into the world and its ordinary course of things through the week, just remember, you've dined with him. And his cup has been in your hand. The man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. We have testified that we are one with Christ. We have testified that his death was our death. We have testified that his blood is what has sealed it all. Do we just come and go? And it has no effect upon us? These are things that perhaps we do well to reflect upon. And in that sense, I don't make apologies for the fact these thoughts are scattered. They still need to be gathered up. In that sense, they weren't gathered up to present a sermon. They were primarily gathered up as a refreshment of soul. And what has refreshed my soul, I trust, might refresh yours as well. And as you gather these things, you're putting them into that vessel. And as you think of them, another verse will come to mind. Another illustration will come to mind. Another doctrine will come to mind. And gradually the whole thing is melded together and you're making ready your present that you might give it to him when you come and dine. That's a great exercise. Don't just let this be a, a spiritually barren week. You've done your duty on the Lord's Day. Now there's just a week of work or college or home life or whatever it is. If the Lord spares us, if he hasn't come, then maybe next week when you meet again, individual saints will have come with vessels, prepared, bring the man a little balm and some honey and some fruits and some nuts, a variety of things that you've treasured in your own soul and put in a vessel that you might bring it for him. We trust God will bless his word. Shall we pray?